<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Ready for a career in behavioral health? Earn your online degree at Herzing University. Choose from health and human services, psychology, or social work programs. Gain the skills to work, coordinate, and manage nonprofits. Secure a bachelor's in psychology to study mental health or advance your social work career through our online master's of social work. Let us help you become a social change agent. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Text HEALTH to 85109. That's HEALTH to 85109. Or visit herzing.edu. Welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, a board game podcast about board games, and we talk about board games and how board games are. I'm here with my great friend, Mark. How are you today, Mark? I'm very well, thanks, Walker. How are you? I'm good. I'm, we're here again to talk about this fantastic hobby that we're involved in. I would like to thank all our listeners for their patience as we gradually reopen the swag factories after Chinese New Year. As things are slowly getting back underway. Speaking about this hobby that we're in, I think it's getting a glut of new players, and I think the corporations are sort of reflecting that, and it seems as though there's a lot more gateway games that are coming out. More about this later when we talk about some of the news items. I just feel as though a lot of them are leaning more towards, you know, lighter, more gateway games. But we'll see. I wouldn't use the term glut walker. Glut has a negative connotation, and I don't think that we would ever want to disparage or bemoan the fact that there are lots of new players entering the hobby. No, I well, I mixed up what I written here was that there was a glut of gateway games, and I came out with a glut as I was talking about <laughs> the number of players, so I just had to go with it because I was already committed. Understood. And I also think it's the era of polydomino games, Mark. I was looking through, this is going to come up in the news, there was a, a big game fair in, in Germany. And if it wasn't a polyomino game, then then you you weren't you weren't considered. It seems to be the new thing. First it was like zombies, then Vikings, then Roll and Right. Now it's going to be polyomino. So there was the mini trend exclusively through Uwe Rosenberg. When Uwe Rosenberg fixates an idea, he can create a trend all by himself just through his own designs. Yeah, just just by will alone. That's look. Some polyomino games are great. I'm not saying they're not. We love us some bears. I'm just saying we love some bears. We love some. Some Viking polyomino feeding. Absolutely. It's all good. So this is a podcast about board games. What we do is we talk about board games. We're going to talk about some games we played this week. We're going to talk about some board game news and why it doesn't matter. And then we're going to talk about our feature game of the week, which is On Mars. Oh, it's on. Oh, it's on. Mark, what did you play this week? Played some more Street Masters Aftershock, and I'm very pleased by that. 
some of our local friends are very keen to play at any given opportunity. And as a result, we've decided to engage in some of the quote-unquote campaigns, because everything's got to have a campaign. And although I've played tons of Street Masters in both the base game version and the Aftershock expansions, haven't played a whole lot with the campaign version, largely because, number one, I'm tired of campaigns, and number two, I never really felt it added much. And I can say, it doesn't really add much. Viewed as a continuing, evolving, overarching narrative with character progression, the campaign mode in Street Masters is no bueno. Viewed as a set of linked, curated setups and scenarios, you fight against these enemies at this stage with mild modifiers thrown in just for just for kicks and gigs, then it's fine. And that is very much the attitude that we've had going in, because every week, we uh, for a while, we'd pull out the, the Aftershock box, and, and I'd say, well, who do you want to fight against? I don't know. And so it's it's nice to have a little bit of curation in that sense of setting up the, the, the stage and the setup, and a little bit of modifiers. And I have to say... Sometimes I've read a stage setup and I figured this is going to be cumbersome. This is going to push things over the edge, very much as we said about Brook City. But it's always been right on the edge of novel and manageable, which is pretty ideal. So in that under in that perspective, the campaign mode for Street Masters, at least the Aftershock campaigns, have been pretty decent. And the game itself remains a blast. I'm still not even remotely tired of the one character that I've been playing a lot of lately. And at the same time, I'm always interested in trying new characters. And so it really is a great way to experience a little bit more of the system. You just can't view it as an overarching campaign the way other overarching campaigns are. And so that's been our recent experiences with Street Masters Aftershock. You still haven't tried any of the Aftershock I, stuff. I am sad. But is the campaign sort of the same thing as the old campaign? Yes. Like each character, they sort of have their own little set of cards and you sort of work your way through them type thing? There's an overall set of cards for the campaign, which can consist of three to six linked scenarios. And then every character has a set of three possible scenarios and some of those are special side missions you're only going to progress your character deck if the entire group agrees and you're going to go off and do that that is indeed one of the things we're going to do and every every setup has success and failure conditions and that might lead you to a different next scenario and so forth but again as a story it's all very pulpy and superficial as a way to have quote-unquote designer suggested setups it's very nice it makes it makes you feel more involved and it's very similar to the imperial salt sort of campaign system where it's like you have this character it's like well if you want to go get this you know character specific lightsaber or you know follow the little family tree or find out what happened to this character's parents then you can go on this little side mission and or follow the campaign same sort of thing and it gives you some sort of invested feeling in that particular character formally yes in the sense that all the group goes and does a side mission and one character not only gets a chance to sign shine but i will say that the narrative elements in Imperial Assault are much more substantial, much more detail-oriented, and I would also say that the quality of the storytelling is also slightly better. It's it's a more flexible system, to be honest, in that sense. I vastly prefer Street Masters, but insofar as if, if you're looking for a sort of campaign experience, this is very much a sideshow. It's not at its best. It's not showing off. The, the better elements. The core, it's just the core gameplay loop is what I like about Street Masters. As I say, this is merely a way to offload some of the decision-making executive functions of deciding who to play against and when. That's Street Masters. I played Isle of Sky again. I keep going back to Isle of Sky because I just really enjoy it. It has this rotating set of uh, victory point conditions that you can that switch in and out. And even in the position, even when they switch positions in the game, they even change the game up because, you know, if they're in the if they're later in the game, then you have a chance to build them up. Anyway, I digress. This is a game by Mayfair and Alexander Pfister, where you're 
laying down tiles and it's much like every other tile laying game except you get to break a rule in this one mark you can cut off roads gasp <laughs> i know it's terrible but other than that it's much more the same you know mountains must you know fit on mountains and you can complete sections and like i said there's a, at least a deck of i i should have wrote it down how many but at least 25 and you're only using four at a time and the fact that they use the same number of tiles for all these different victory conditions is very interesting as well. And I just like their, you know, the bidding system and everything else. I think it all works and it's easy to teach and moves along at a nice pace. I'm not a massive fan of Isle of Sky, but I do wish that Fister would go and do more things like that. Because if you look at Fister's catalog of games, it's kind of the odd one out, certainly in terms of, of the popular designs. One can have a reasoned discussion about how similar... Nakaraibo and Blackout and Mombasa R to Great Western Trail and all those other things, but I, I don't think anyone could seriously dispute that Isle of Sky is very different from a lot of his other output. Agreed. I get to play The Resistance, and I'm very, very happy about it. After all my whining about not being able to play The Resistance, I was able to do it. It was a very, very quick game in which we used the Merlin and Assassin version. Just as a parenthetical side note, I haven't said this in a while. I don't even know if I've said it ever on this podcast. I don't know when or why the entire gaming community decided to recast the Arthurian legends as some sort of spy thriller. I, I blame Shadows over Camelot and the Resistance Avalon. I don't think it's a very, I, I don't think it's a thematic representation of anything. Like, oh, who knows who Merlin is? Like that, that how does that make any sense? Anyway, setting all that aside, <laughs> we did play the, the original version of the Resistance, but we played with the Merlin and Assassin cards. And there indeed, it, it, it makes thematic sense. Anyway. I'm sure this, I've heard that this is the essential way to play. I don't know. I could, I could go either way. The only strong opinion I have about playing the Resistance is to play without the Plot Thickens cards. Because the Plot Thickens cards drain out, in my experience, drain out all the tension and all the intrigue and all the interest. And introduce either unhelpful noise or undesirable certainty. Both of which don't improve the gameplay experience of the Resistance. It was a very quick game because Merlin outed himself very quickly. He he just started making pronouncements a little too confidently, and so basically what happened was the Assassin's figure, okay, I know what's going on here. And at that point, it was a done deal. And to his credit, the Assassin then ended the game as quickly as possible because he thought it was a done deal. This was a risky move, but I think socially for the good, because that's one of the criticisms about the Assassin Merlin variant, right? You can the, you can have lost in the second turn, but the game continues shambling on until such time as the Assassin maximizes their chance of success by going for the normal victory and then knowing they have the backup option of assassinating Merlin anyway. But our Assassin, good man, he knew who Merlin was, and so he said, all right, let's do this, and he just plowed through, voted with the Resistance to get clean missions to go through, and then he's like, yep, you're dead, and that was it. I don't know if I would have had the courage or confidence to do the same thing, but it was an interesting way to do things. And it was just, it was very, even though it was a very quick, dirty, straightforward game where, where the loss was handed relatively early, I'd still vastly prefer the resistance. It is my large group game of choice, bar none. And it had been far too long. And I'm going to try to convince people to keep playing. Everyone always says the same thing, which is absolutely true. The resistance is too tense. And that's one of the reasons why I love it. It is a tense game where decisions matter and inferences are important and data is consequential. So maybe this light, breezy, quick version of The Resistance will convince people to try it again before too long goes up. Let us hope. I love The Resistance, and so should everyone else. I played dozens of games of Shadespire Underworlds. I'm going to talk about it because it is a direct implementation. So it's the digital version that's done by Steel Sky Productions. 
and we don't normally talk about video games, but like I said, because it's a direct import, I'm going to talk about it. I think they did a great job. I think it's very clunky, right? Because I looked up the Steel Sky Productions, and they've done nothing else. This is their oh. one and only production and development. I could be wrong, but when I looked, when I found their website, it just had Underworlds on it. So, so who knows? But anyway, I feel as though they did all around good job. They have the undead, the chaos, uh, the empire, Steelheart champions. Yeah, the the Steelheart champions, the the original ones. Yes. The orcs, the chaos, and the undead. They're all in the starter set. The one part that isn't clunky, though, Mark, which I really appreciate is the deck construction. It, they, that part, they really did a great job on. You just, you know, mouse over one of the cards and it tells you what the card is. You simply click on it, it takes it out of the deck and it even tells you, you know, you have, you know, nine of ten now in that section because it's very definite what you need in Underworld's deck. It's, there's no if, ands, or buts about it. You need ten of those, you know, ten upgrades, ten power. And then you're, so it's nice and easy. I'm worried, like you said, you know, how are they going to do the purchases afterwards? If it's going to get too expensive, so people will just be out and not bother. But what they have so far, I think they did a great job. It looks fantastic. Like I said, the controls are a little clunky. Like you have to drag cards out onto the field, even like for a reaction. If, you know, someone attacks you and misses, you get to attack back. You have to say, yes, I'm going to attack back. Yes, I'm going to attack back with Ah. the only attack that I can. You should have just, you know, let me do it in the first place. And then, you know, confirm the attack. And, you know, so three steps to do one thing that is obvious. But anyway, I'm sure it will all be fixed up. Oh, and the other one thing I want to talk about is the handicap. I really wish they did a sliding scale. All they do is let you do either a two or a five. I just wish they let you input whatever you wanted so you could go above five off the beginning because. Sorry, what do you mean? I don't understand. You can give the, you can give the AI power tokens right off the beginning. I see. As a handicap. So either you say, I'm going to give them a two handicap or a five handicap. I wish you could go above five. The AI is really bad. (laughs) So my understanding is that future card packs are going to be released for free and that future warbands are going to cost money. Is this true? That I don't know. They've, they've got no... I looked everywhere for any sort of indication on pricing or what's coming out next. I well, that's what I read on the Steam page. And so I'm curious how many cards are already available. It would be difficult to eyeball the proportion of overall cards available. One assumes it would just be a subset of the ones that were released as of the Undead Warband released. But I found it hard to get... I've said this before. I find it hard to get motivated to pay money to get something that I already have, especially when it is a small subset of all I already have. And given that my early favorite warband was the Skaven, and they're not in there yet, I, I'm not particularly enthusiastic at this particular juncture, but I'm glad at least the deck construction is smooth. Because, of course, that is one of the most cumbersome cumbersome elements of dealing with components as it stands now. Exactly. The fact that you can save your deck, and you don't have to like build it every time you want to play. You just name every deck, and you can just try you know, flashing it out. Even They, they even have different... Uh, colors for the war bands. You can sort of slightly customize the the armies as well. So that's kind of cool. And that is Shadespire Underworlds by Steel Sky Productions. I finally, at long last, got to play Food Chain Magnate, the catch-up mechanism and other ideas, the expansion to Food Chain Magnate. And we had had the opportunity previously. A number of listeners had, in fact, said, why don't you just play with the new milestones already? You don't need any of the components from the expansion. And for reasons passing understanding now, I look back at my younger, foolish, slightly less fat self, and I wonder why I didn't do that. Because I'd never use milestone cards anyway. The way one traditionally plays with Food Chain Magnet, if you have no peripherals or no player aids whatsoever, is you set out, I believe I calculated this out, 18,233 stacks of cards all around the table, 
one stack for every profession type and one stack for every milestone, and then you spend the entire time fiddling with cards. The way civilized people play is they don't use the milestone cards and instead use some sort of player aid and they just circle it when they get it and cross it off when they don't, which takes up roughly one-tenth the space and certainly much less of... The non-savages. Yeah, precisely, the non-savages. And since this was already available to us before the expansion was released, certainly long before we had had our own copy, I don't know why I did this, some sense of purity or or, or some... Pride, Mark. Pride. uh, Foolish, foolish pride. The exuberance of a misspent youth. What can I say? So I've played with only some of the modules. The Ketchup Mechanism has a whole bunch of different modules, and they sincerely recommend that you don't play with all of them at once, because some of them change the priority of who is going to eat where, which is the most de- determinative part of the game. And so I've played with the new, the new milestones twice, and I've played with coffee, and I've played with none of the other optional foods. Coffee changes things very minimally. It just gives you income uh, when people drive past your restaurants. And then there are all these other things like sushi, like kimchi that change where people eat. And so I'm going to be experimenting with them over time. What I can say is that the new milestones shake up the game tremendously, as you might expect. Milestones are hugely consequential in the game of Food Chain Magnate, and the new milestones are very interesting. You now have to go th- go down basically one of three paths, because there are three very powerful milestones that expire at the end of turn two. So you'd better go get one of them, and you can't get more than one. You can go down the marketing path, the training path, or the hiring path. And I've tried two of them, and they've both been very interestingly different. Of course, of course, there's chatter on the internet about how one or more of them is broken, what? either being too good or too there's bad. There's opinions on the internet? Yes. Madness. Categorical opinions delivered with great certainty after a single play or after having just read the rules. And what I've said to, to people I've been playing the game with, I've played with people who've played Food Chain before and people who haven't, and I said, oh, that looks a little bit dodgy. And I said, yeah, I agree with you. I'm there with you. It does look a bit dodgy. But I thought that lots of old milestones looked dodgy after turn play one or two before, and I was wrong, and I saw how after play six, seven, eight, nine, and ten, that the milestones worked out pretty pretty well. So I'm reserving judgment on how balanced they are. None of them seem abusive, and everyone still gets to do their thing, which is to say engage in a brutally competitive economic knife fight. So I have to say that in terms of sheer variety, it's wonderful, but I will say this. This is the first time I've ever purchased a, spl- a Splatter product and thought, eh, this didn't need to be that much. Because Splatter games are very expensive. And usually they have lovely components and lovely art. And you can say, well, you know, they're a very, very small, tiny, bespoke company. But here, what you're getting when you're buying the, the ketchup mechanism is you're getting a whole bunch of milestone cards that I don't use. And I encourage no one to use. Go get one of the player aids and deal with that as far as your milestones are concerned. A whole bunch of components for a sixth player, which, no thank you. Oh my god. Look, it's not... I, I think that the length of Food Chain Magnet has been exaggerated. People talk about it as though it's like a four or five hour game. I think that's 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 definitely out of proportion. But I wouldn't want to play a six player game. So that goes out the window. Then there are lovely components in wood for multiples of five. So giant pieces, pizzas and giant burgers and giant colas. And they're adorable and borderline useless, so I don't use those. Because you might have lots and lots of pizza, but it's going to spoil the end of the turn anyway. And if you don't have just five or six, you're going to have to make change in five hot seconds anyhow. You feed people right after accumulating the food, so what's the point? So I don't use those. So basically, in a box full of components, I'm looking through it as like, not using, not using, don't need, wouldn't use, not interested, etc., etc. And what you're left with is a small number of cards for the other modules that you might be inclined to try. 
Am I disappointed in supporting uh, Splatter as a company? Absolutely not. Am I disappointed in having more food chain mating to explore? Absolutely not. This is just the first time where I kind of understood where people were coming from when they look at the price tag and say, eh, it's a lot of money for, for not a whole lot of components. I get it. And of course, to the people who are going to piously tell me, well, you're not really paying for the components, you're paying for, for the design works. Like, that is not true. That is manifestly economically not true. There's not a correlation between the quality or quantity of design work and MSRP. I'm sorry. That's not how it works. I agree with you conceptually that it would be a wonderful world if that's how it worked. But of course, then I wouldn't be able to afford a copy of Tigers and Euphrates because it would cost $23,000. So setting all that aside... I've had a great time with the food chain made at the catch-up mechanism. I will say this, unlike a lot of other module expa modular expansions, you can play with newbies right away. They don't know how milestones work. Whether they have one set of milestones or another set of milestones, it's all the same to them. They're going to lose their first few games anyhow. And the most recent game I had was very illustrative because it was one of the... It was the longest game of Food Chain Magnet I'd ever played because it reduced to a brutal cost-cutting, undercutting enterprise where somebody was trying to sell food and beverage at $4 a pop. It, 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 was, it was wild. Uh, <laughs> so I'm looking forward to exploring the new fertile ground of the new milestones of Food Chain Magnet. I've had a great time... And I am interested in some of the modules, although some of them seem a little bit strange. Wasn't it the, the coffee that you told me that you could su supplement in for other things? That's they, noodles. Noodles. That's, okay, that's, that's, Coffee's that's not, the one If that you're hungry for pizza and somebody says, here, have some coffee instead, that's a little strange. But there's the notion that if you want a coffee, two pizzas uh, – sorry, if you want two pizzas, a burger, and a beer – and nobody sells that, you will happily go and uh, slurp down four bowls of noodles. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense either, but at least it makes slightly more sense. No, but I think, I think it's going like to lead to interesting strategies, that's for sure. Yes. It will interplay with how you market and when. And that, honestly, is what I'm ex interested in exploring next. I want to go into a heavy marketing strategy because, generally speaking, the kind of pattern that I have in Food Chain Magnate, although it's very sandbox and you can do lots of different things, I tend to just react to other people's marketing. I don't tend to go out and try to influence the market demands. I would much rather let someone else engage in the effort and then try to capitalize on the, the, the marketing that they've done, which is very interesting in that uh, the past game that I played, one of our one of our local friends his attitude towards food chain magnet is to bombard things with marketing and think think about the consequences later, and so that's been a very interesting. Uh, I'm going to advertise everything and like then react to my own marketing. Just get what did I do again? Precisely. All right, let's do this. Precisely. Look at the look at the lemonade tragedy that you have wrought. <laughs> and so, anyway, all of this is to say that we still adore food chain magnet. I'm interested in, in exploring some of the modules with you at some uh, sometime soon. Delightful, delightful game. And if you want a, a, a really a tremendous amount of variety for a game that already plays radically different every, every time, the catch-up mechanism is certainly going to bring you lots of good times. So there was a game I wanted to play last year, Mark. It was Imperial Settlers, Empires of the North. And I finally got to pick up a copy, and I've tried it solo version for the first time. I haven't tried it with multiple players, but the, the art is fantastic. And just like, so this is a game that is based off of the first 51st State, then Imperial Settlers, and then 51st State Master Set. And now we lead up to Imperial Settlers, Empires of the North. So it comes with like six different armies in the box. They've already have expansions out for more and more have been announced. And it's, and it, it plays pretty well. It has this cool little wheel of actions you can do and the, the normal card actions and and leads raiding opponents a little easier instead of destroying their things you just tap them so they can't use them and and you get to send your ships out and conquer islands and has nice wooden pieces much like the other sets 
And it, and the the solo version played not too badly. You go to the back of the book and it has, you know, six or seven different missions that you can play and the components that are included in the game get flipped around. That's the one interesting part I thought. It has this rondelle that you that switches up every time. It's like four actions that you could do dur- during the game. You have your two action pawns and you put it on the action that you want and you do that action. And then later on in that turn, you can play a food and you can flip that action token over and move it left or right and do that action as well. So both those, so you can do up to four actions as long as you have the food. And then how it works in the solo game is that after that end of that turn, whatever actions your tokens are on, they flip over and there's like the solo mode on the back and they get more expensive. And then on a following turn after that, you look at the rondelle again, you flip over ones that your action tokens are on again, but the ones that aren't taken, you flip them back over to the normal side. So they're cheaper again. I thought that was very interesting, but it plays over well, overall very well. It's, it tells you how many victory points you need to get at the end of four turns. I like the fact that it's a, a turn-based thing. You have four turns to do what you need to do and you roll a D6. Most of the missions have like a little chart where you're going to lose some food or you can pay guys to get extra stuff, good or bad. And it's an interesting little jaunt for a solo game that I don't usually play and I actually enjoyed it. And that is Imperial Settlers, Empires of the North. I'm always a sucker for interesting action selection mechanisms and I'd be interested to see what that does to the fundamental engine. Yeah, this is a game by Portal and another Ignaldi Trevichek game. And there's a Joanna... Kinjaka. At one point, I knew how to say her name. Yes. Those are all the games I played. What else did you play, Mark? I played a social metagame called Pretense. This is the kind of thing that you play while you're playing other games. You break it out at the beginning of the game night, and it's just a thing that kind of goes on top of whatever else you're doing. I'd heard about these. There were a number of these in vogue in French Canada when I was living in Quebec, and I'd never tried any, although I always found them conceptually interesting. And the one that the way that pretense works is you're given a quote-unquote role, which is just if the following thing happens, you get to take somebody else's role. And the goal is to either be the last person standing or have accumulated the greatest number of roles at the end of the evening or event. Yeah, I have this. Did you know I have this? I did not know you had this. I have this sitting. I played it quite a while ago, and I thought it was a a great idea for like a game night, and then it's been sitting on my shelf forever. It was cute, I gotta say. It's it's only going to work if everyone takes it equally seriously. Or, no, I would say the opposite, if everyone takes it equally not seriously. Sure. At an equal level of seriousness, and that level is very low. Exactly. So, for example, I got had people agree to play a game by a house rule, and somebody suggested that we play Dogs of War. And then I immediately said, sure, for two reasons. Number one, I love Dogs of War, and I'm always happy to play Dogs of War. Secondly, I only play Dogs of War by the designer's suggested house rules. And so I explained the game. Then I said, so we're going to play by these house rules. Everyone okay with that? And they said, yes. So everyone's everyone's now agreed that we're going to play by these house rules. And they said, yes. I'm like, all right, I've just won. And so I started I started taking things, and then I get one that says, uh, have someone throw something to you and catch it. And so then I had someone throw me a game component, and I said, sorry to make you throw that. And he said, no, no, this is fine. So, oh, so you agree, you agree that you threw it to me. I, I take your role now. And so I was the jerk. I was about to say, <laughs> so you took this fun game and made it... Uh, yeah, I was, look, I just want, I, I was, I was there trying to see how it worked and I was just gonna, and then I wandered over to the other table and I said, Hey, could, could, could you pass me that rule book? I'm curious about something. You pass me a rule book and said, Oh, okay. I take your role now. Cause it was, I, I eventually stopped. I accumulated about six or seven. And the one that, that I stopped at was somebody starts or stops the quote unquote, the music. And there was no music involved. And so 
I was pretty much stuck. I thought about some people were actually playing pit at the table over, and so a lot of people were ringing bells. And I thought about trying to weasel my way to getting that to work, but Lower I thought, you in. know what, you know what, Mark, that is the one step too far. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's the one thing I thought might might make this off might take away from the game that you're playing might you know pull people out of the experience if people start you know interrupting and and dwelling on this particular other game too much. yes because i think one of the goals of the game is to induce a kind of social paranoia because if you can guess what somebody else's role is what someone is trying to get done then you take it from them so if somebody had known the game state better and pause just in the middle of the, oh, he's trying to get us to play by house rules. I bet you're the guy who needs to get played by house rules. They could have stolen it from me. And on the one hand, that's probably cute. But on the other hand, I don't want to be in a social situation where I say, could you pass me the rule book? And someone says, why are you asking to, no, get it your own damn self. I don't think that would lead to a good social dynamic. No. So as it was, it was kind of cute, but I don't think there, it is something that I'd want to take seriously. I don't think I'd want to get it played the way that the designers seem to have it wanted played. But it was nice to experience for once. I'd never done the kind of social metagame on top of normal games that I that I've been reading about for a few years and so I was glad to be able to try pretense. Yeah, I think it'd be great on a light gaming night, you know, like with, you know, family orientated or, you know, lighter games, people coming to your house to play it other than like a, you know, a games day at like a location. Yes, if I were in a position where I knew that I would be playing games exclusively that I thought were zero to close to no mental effort, like if for whatever reason I was trapped playing LCR, I'd absolutely say, hey, let's play pretense on top of this and see what happens. That would give me at least something to focus on other than the game itself. But even when you're playing something like Dogs of War and then you're going to go on and play Food Chain Magnate, not really necessarily something that adds to the experience if you are going to be playing it quote-unquote seriously. And if you play it too seriously, then things could get very awkward. So, as I say, overall, I thought that pretense was pretty cute. And those are the games we played last week. On to the news and why it doesn't matter. Mark. Yes. I sent you a message about this Kanban. So Kanban is now on Kickstarter. I never read anything you send me. It's now, it's, it looks interesting. They've, they have updated some of the rules. There's now electric cars. They've changed some of the mechanisms. But the one thing I do want to talk about is the fact that there is a tier mark where you can pay a hundred extra dollars so you can receive your copy of Kanban as long as you live in the U.S. four weeks earlier than everybody else because they are going to airship a hundred copies over and you will be the lucky few that will get your copy before everybody else. Isn't that wonderful? I don't know. I'm of two minds. I, I think insofar as there are a lot of people who would want that to happen, I don't see any problem with it. If they want to do it and people want to pay it, that's perfectly fine. I just thought it was... Interesting. It, it, it could, of course, lead to a perverse incentive whereby if this is actually a profit-making enterprise, you now have a strange incentive as a publisher to make sure that the other copies get delayed. I'm well, not suggesting that they would do that intentionally, but I'm saying that in a world where we know that you have limited, limited personnel and limited logistical throughput, if you have to hurry to send these uh, additional expensive copies early and you know that that might delay something else somewhere else, that might actually be even be in your interest to, to do so. Maybe this sounds hopelessly conspiratorial, but that's that's the downside well, of that. I let's go to conspiracy. What if this, you know, I did forgot. I think it was about 20 people of the 100 have already signed up. But what if they it sells out and people realize that this is a trend and now almost every project starts doing this where they have another tier where you can pay an extra amount of money so you get yours earlier than everybody else? If it's in good faith, I don't see a problem with that. I mean, look, we already have that through Gen Con sales. 
which is effectively a way to throw money at the problem and get the game slightly earlier anyhow for, for some people. So I, I don't see this as necessarily being radically new. And I can tell you, in the past, there have been some projects where if I thought that this didn't actually delay things and I wasn't actually being scanned and this wasn't actually some sort of pressure, pressure play, and they said, give us $100 and you're going to get it early, I would have said yes. There you go. <laughs> I, look, look, I don't know. I, I'm waiting to see what happens. It could easily have a toxic effect on, effect on, on Kickstarter delivery. On the other hand, it could just be a way for some people to get their games earlier. I don't know. My ambivalence seems to disappoint you. No, no, no. I, 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 the whole thing seems interesting to me, that's all. Because I really feel as though the the tension on getting games earlier is being reduced. I think there's just so many games coming out that the want for reviewers and or people to get games before anybody else is diminishing quickly. Hmm. People are more I hope int- you're right. People are more interested in knowing what the game's like before they buy. At least this is what I'm hoping. That would be an excellent consequence of, of the frenetic release schedule, that people are actually calming down about new releases. That would be an interesting, uh, interesting result. So on the topic of getting things early, Renegade Games, a publisher that has some interesting stuff, has put in a new program whereby some of their games are going to be available in brick-and-mortar retail game stores in advance of any other distribution chain. This is fascinating to me for me because, generally speaking, publishers have tended to introduce programs that are meant to be friendly to local game stores, usually just by charging people more money. If you think about the way that minimum advertised price policies that have been introduced by a number of publishers, they always dress it up as a way to help the, the game store. But one can't help but notice that it also redounds to the increased margins for the game seller in the first place. So one wonders, again, you don't have to be conspiratorial to wonder if it's some sort of cynical ploy. But here, Renegade is actually cutting off other sources of revenue for a brief time, so it's just a function of them selling in, in local game stores. I don't know if this is going to be successful or have any effect. They, I can't help but notice that it's just two of their smaller box releases. It's going to be Gloomy Graves and Stellar, uh, but they are going to be available at brick-and-mortar retail st- stores as of February 12th, which is today when we are recording. And they are going to be sold elsewhere later. So it's an interesting idea, at least. And if it is actually going to help brick-and-mortar retail stores, more power to them. Mark, I have some questions. They're not for you. They'll be for our listeners, because I know you won't want, you won't answer these questions. So okay. Is Quacks and Quiglinburg not long enough for you? <laughs> is, is your random game not random enough for you? Did you think, well... Quacks of Quillenberg is great, but did I really pay enough money for that much random? I, I have a question for you, Walker. Do you know what a rhetorical question is? Well, I've got a game for you. This is called Wonderland's War. This is a game that is surprisingly identical to Quacks of Quillenberg, where you're building your bag full of tokens, and eventually you're going to go out and and fight over area control of these three different areas by pulling these tokens out of your bag and building up a certain number of points, much like quacks, and you could go bust, and you'll be out of that particular round. But it comes with an upteen number of miniatures and upgrades and crazy tokens that make, I believe, one of the tiers is $150 US. It looks fantastic, and I really think I want to give it a try because, like I said, I, I have so many negative things about quacks but just that just the press your luck of pulling these things out of the bag really leads to some great moments i feel hey at least if there is area control slash area majority fighting then you're going to have more player interaction 
because that was also one of the knocks against Quacks of Quevenberg. There's only a small number of things where other players' interaction with you matter. Well, this is definitely has it sort of in spades, because what they do is they do the giant, you know, uh, tea party right in the middle. And that's how the turn's going to start, right? And you're going to move your pawn around. Oh, so, it is, so it is Alice in Wonderland theme. It is definitely Alice in Wonderland theme. Yeah, yeah. It's Wonderland's War. You're moving around the tea party. You move as much as, as far as around the table as you wish. And you're going to pick up this card. And it'll tell you how many tokens to put in your bag or to do, you know, they have all sorts of different cards. You can get a little helper, a little sidekick that will go and help you in the fights. Is the Jabberwocky represented? The Jabberwocky you get to play as one of the player characters. <laughs> and the Cheshire Cat's one of the one, other ones as well. And the other, the cool mechanism about that is that if you go around the head of the table, then you're going to get some, you know, curse tokens or bad things. And you're going to put, you know, the bus tokens into your bag. So I thought that was interesting as well. So you can go as far as you want, but every time you pass, you know, you're going to put these negative tokens in your bag. And then everyone, you know, does this an X number of times. And then, like I said, then you're going to move to the three different areas of control where you're going to start pulling out tokens from your bag and you're trying to beat the score of everybody else. And, you know, the tokens have all sorts of special abilities, like they trigger off each other, just like in Quacks. And then, like I said, the companions that you get will also lead. And you can also put your main character in one of the theaters that also gives you more. And you also have a player board that... that You've gone deep. You normally don't get this level of detail in a game that you're ready to teach. I know, right? Speak more on that in a minute anyway. But that being said, you also have a player board that some of the cards you get from the Tea Party that will give you tokens to upgrade your player board. I think overall it seems fairly interesting, and I really think that I might even pledge for it. We'll see. All right. Final bit of news for me is that the Shut Up and Sit Down Expo shucks. The tickets for this year have gone on sale. It's going to be from October 16th to 18th of this year in, of course, beautiful British Columbia. Uh, a number of people have asked us, actually, if we're going back, and the simple answer that I have for you is we haven't been invited yet, so maybe we'll be invited, maybe we won't. If you want to see us there, bother Quinn's. It's out of our hands. But I can, we can absolutely say that Chuck's is a great convention if you want to be around great people, a diverse group of people who are extremely friendly and committed to gaming, and with a massive games library, and next to nobody trying to sell you anything. So, That's right. Simple to use games library. Simple to use... Uh, teaching aids, right? You put a, a thing on your table to tell you that you need someone to help you learn play it, or a thing on your table that says you need more players, and everything. everyone was great. I would go back there anytime. You know, I really think in, in next time I should spend more time looking for people who need games to be taught, because you know, it's a valuable public surface. To... 100%. Fancy Flight has a Marvel Heroes game, trading card game. We both think it's fantastic. But does it have miniatures? Well, Simon says, guess what? We talked about Marvel United already, and it's now on Kickstarter, and it comes with fantastic miniatures. And, you know, this is where I talked about a gateway game. I looked into this one just as much as I did as Wonderland's War. You're going to be playing on this timeline. You're going to have this hand of three cards, and it's much like... Uh, Sentinels of the Multiverse, the villain's going to do their very first turn, their turn first, and then each hero is going to play a card. And not only do you get to do what's on your card, but you get to do what's on the previous card. So you form this giant, you know, timeline throughout the game, and you're going to these, you know, six different locations trying to beat the villain. Seems relatively good, but relatively light. For my part, I have to say, I've never really been under the illusion that Kickstarter is some sort of shining paradise for independent creators to achieve their vision, and I've always viewed it more or less as basically a store. But 
I finally found the line where I think something is pretty much in bad taste. And that is when Coolman You're Not, one of the biggest game publishers in the industry, is partnering with a multi-billion dollar franchise, namely Marvel, and they have gone to crowdfunding. That's the line. I found the line. I found the line for me. That's the line. I 100% thought that this was just going to be one of their normal releases. When I saw that it had gone up on Kickstarter, I was fairly... I'm not saying Baffling. it's wrong. I'm just saying that this is an indication of what this is. This is my new standard to identify what Kickstarter has become. Agreed. All right. There's another company called Mind Clash Games. They have done games that we love, like Cerebria. Cerebria. Anachrony. Anachrony. And we, uh, I haven't tried Trickeria. Neither have I. Uh, but I want to. I, it has got good buzz. I want to give it a try. There's a couple people in our group that have it. I want to give it a try. But they're having a new game coming out called Perseverance, the Castaway Chronicles. It, you, it looks like uh, sort of like an adventure type game. You're on this island. You're being chased by dinosaurs. You know, how can we not love it? Is it an adventure narrative campaign type uh, thing? We'll see. Uh, All right. Very last Walker. thing. Let's go really I co- like Mind Clash. I know. Let's go very fast here. All right. So like I said earlier, there is a 2020 trade fair in Nuremberg, Germany. Please go check it out on Board Game Geek. They have their news page where they cover all of these games. These are ones that stood out very quickly to me. Like I already talked about, My City by Reiner Knizia. It's a legacy polyomino city building game. There's a hilarious one that looks like Unicorn Fever that you can buy these like uh, unicorn figures for that looks hilarious. There's Andor Jr., like a children's game. You know, Andor, it was this really well done uh, adventuring game that took off in Europe, but not so much in North America. There is another game called Four Gardens that has this like giant elaborate pagoda that really that on reading and looking at all it does is tell you what resources you're going to take that particular turn and then it rotates and has another list of could, of resources on the other side. Could we take the plants from Papillon and put them on top of the pagoda? I suppose we could. So it's sort of like, I, I'm hoping that you build it every game. So like what goods you get every turn change. So it's just supposed to be there so you can look ahead to see what you're going to be getting. And then it turn anyway, it seems super elaborate for what it does, but we'll see. And Hansa Tonica Big Box, Mark. Hansa Tonica Big Box. We finally got pictures about it and exactly what's in it. So it's all of the expansions that have been out so far. And it also includes the Emperor's Favor promo. Yes. That was in the 2016 uh, calendar. I have my copy. Do you have your copy? I do now. I bought it today on the board game market. High five, Walker. High five. <laughs> As soon as I read it, it's like, oh, really? Well, let's just see. There's a Canadian that has it for $8. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> so now it is mine. So that is all the news that I saw this week and what Mark talked about and why it totally does not matter. Now, on to the featured game, which is No Mars, which is kind of funny. It's really on Mars, but I typed No Mars. No, it's, it's French. It translates to We Mars. And then I was going to... <laughs> and then I was going to change it, and then I realized because there's no really thematic part in this game, No Mars is very more fitting. So I just left it as <laughs> No Mars instead of On Mars. All right. On Mars was released by Vitalis Serta this year by Eagle Griffin Games because Eagle Griffin pretty much puts out all the new Vitalis Serta stuff. Vitalis Serta has published a lot of medium to heavyweight Euro games, Vinhos CO2, Kanban Galarus Lisboa Escape Plan, the latter three as sort of 
incredibly sprawling, expensive Eagle Griffin de- uh, designs with Ian O'Toole doing the artwork. Vinhos, CO2, and Kanban have also been re-released. Vinhos and Kanban by Eagle Griffin Games, although Kanban is currently up on Kickstarter. CO2 was uh, actually republished in a much more modest uh, design, and CO2 is comparatively also rules modest. And what Vitalis sort of likes to do is he likes to do lots and lots of systems that work together in various ways in a standard Eurogame package. I, for one, have played in the past Lisboa and the Gallerist. I have not done a whole lot of a deep dive into other Vitalis sort of stuff. I don't know about Walker's past experience with uh, Mr. Lacerda. I played Kanban and I have played Lisboa. Did not like Lisboa, but thought Kanban was fantastic. I want to try Kanban because even people who don't like a lot of other Lacerda stuff like Kanban. But anyway, all that having been said, he is a pro- now, I think, safe to say, a reasonably prolific designer, especially in the context of heavyweight Euro games because they tend to take a little bit longer to develop and release. And On Mars is the latest one. Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary of what one does in On Mars? All right, so On Mars, I'm going to compare it to, like, you know, the stand-up arcade machine, which is Street Fighter. Street Fighter or Street Fighter 2? Well, let's say Street Fighter 2. Either one. Either one. Have you this, played Street Fighter? I have. Okay. Because what you can do is you just mash the buttons. You face roll across the buttons, and you just go crazy, and you can do whatever you want. And I, you have just as much chance of winning as you do the other person who knows what they're doing because they're usually looking over at you like you have no idea what you're doing and that you're a crazy person, but you might baffle your opponent so much and you still you know, squeak in and come in at just as many points you as You can't win Street Fighter button mashing. Tekken and Virtua Fighter maybe, case depending. Soul Calibur and Soul, definitely, but anyway. So we're gonna, I'm going to do this much different. I know why I always like to do good points and bad points, but this is such... A large spanning game. There's so much going on that by the time we get back and forth, you know, I think it's just better to bring up certain points and and talk about why they're good and why they're bad. I've converted you, finally. I know. I'm just going to start. Before you do that, do you want my uh, two-word summary of On Mars? Yes, I would love your two-word summary of On Mars. Why bother? Why bother? Why bother? Just (laughs) because. (laughs) <laughs> All right, so I'm just going to sort of lay out what you do in On Mars. What you're doing is you're building this little outpost on Mars, and they have this very helpful summary. I don't know why it's in. Did you understand why it's in the book about you need minerals to build the purifiers and the purifiers to build this? And it has this great little circle of life of why everything needs everything else, but it, I didn't see it. was an attempted actually, theme. Oh, attempted theme. Gotcha. All right, so I feel as though on Mars all boils down to the same basic basic thing. You're you're uh, modifying basic actions. You're modifying those actions and you're making those actions easier to take or you're doing things that let you take other actions. So you're going to be doing some actions in orbit and you're going to be doing some actions down on the planet. Now you're asking yourself, well, Mike, all of these things are upgrading actions making actions easier to take. When are you going to actually talk about the actions that you're going to do in the game? Well, don't worry. Here it is. It's only one. So here it is. You get to construct a building, Mark. You get to build, construct a building on Mars. And if it's with other buildings, it could be a complex because it's a group of buildings as long as the tech's out that lets you do that and it gets you resources and will get you some points as long as it's needed by the colony. And then you get to score LSS points as well, because there's a track on the right-hand side. It'll be randomly different every time you play, 
And depending on what you've got and what building you built, you're going to score points there as well. And you also get a free free Benny. All right, here's the thing. The fact that all this fits together is a minor miracle. Well, and is it really, though? Because, like I said, there's only one real action. I don't and that's know. Okay, what, do you mean, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, everything else is just building up to that. Everything else is just getting your resources in order to build this building or making other actions No, because you, you need buildings to – you need resources to, to buy a scientist or buy a tech or upgrade a tech. Yeah, but what or, do the techs do? All the techs do is let you build the – No, your, so, some of the techs mean that you're – that when you welcome a, a ship, you get more people. Some of that – Which let you take these actions – which all no, no, lead, no, no, no. They I, all I, funnel down to this one action, or one could argue that they all funnel down to some other different action. I mean, I, I, I think you're, I think you're unduly narrowing the scope of what's actually going on, because in a given game, I don't know that the bulk of your points are going to come for directly from having built buildings or not. For example, in in the the first game I played, most of my points came from techs. And it didn't have anything to do with the fact that I was building a building. And yes, my techs were helping other people build buildings, but I wasn't building any buildings. I, I, I mean, that's one way you can go at it. But there's all this stuff, and it all it all fits. Even if it all funneled to building buildings, I think I would actually prefer the game if it all funneled down and focused on things. Because I'm going to talk about that later. But the fact that it all works together, that all the systems function and don't fall apart under their own weight is a bit of a minor miracle. And when I talk to people who really like Vitalis Erta games, certainly the more dense ones, the more system-laden ones, that's one of the things they talk about. They talk about how great it is that all these things fit together. But my problem is, and one of the reasons why I don't really find that super appealing, is that the way in which they interplay isn't always particularly interesting to me. For example, and this is this is one of my general criticisms of the game. There are caps on everything. There's a hard cap on everything that goes on. The amount of resources you can store, the amount of crystals you can store, the number of ships you can summon, the number of columns you can have. All these are, are caps dependent on something else. It's like, okay, well, before I do that, I should really increase my, my cap to increase the throughput somewhere else, blah, blah, blah. And so all these things fit together because all these caps are, are t- tied to different things. And you can increase your efficiency in one thing and not in another thing. But ultimately... They don't come together in what I would call a very interesting way. I, I, I just want to tinker around the ed, the margins of my system so that I'm going to increase my capacity to store batteries because I'm about to get three batteries and I'd rather they not go to waste. And, you know, those kinds of trade-offs don't strike me as particularly interesting when compared to other Euro games, whether they're simple or complicated, where things tie together and interact in a much more satisfying way. For example, and this is one of my favorite games of all time, Senji is a brilliant Euro game that has lots of different systems that all come together beautifully and tie together in a fascinating way, often, though not exclusively, in a function of combat. The diplomacy ties into the order selection, which ties into the combat, which ties into the economics. And all these radically different things come together in a beautiful whole. I don't find that the systems of On Mars come together in much of a beautiful beautiful whole either. In a game like Tigers and Euphrates, there's lots of different ways to skin a cat, and there are lots of different ways to approach taking a bit of territory from someone else. All these things working together, coming together to a beautiful whole. Again, not something you tend to find for me in, in Vital Asserta's work, particularly On Mars. Other games like Demacher, if he's frozen, there's lots of other stuff going on, and it all comes together in a very interesting mix. I find that I'm just doing all these weird, atomistic, pointillistic, different little things in On Mars. It's like, okay, I guess I'll grab this blueprint. Why am I grabbing this blueprint? Well, it's the path of least resistance, and I can afford it now. I guess I'll grab it. Oh, it'll be worth some points later. Okay, fine, whatever. 
And I think this is this is really demonstrated because when I when I first played on Mars, I thought that what was going to happen was something kind of akin to what you see in something like the Voyages of Marco Polo. Because in the Voyages of Marco Polo, they're again radically different games. You have these special powers that radically break the system. I ignore this part of the economy. I just don't have to deal with it. I, I, I get it all for free. And I thought that something like that was going to happen when we saw people building advanced buildings. For example, there are advanced buildings that just say, oh, just take resources. Just just go ahead, take them. And I thought, oh, that's going to be interesting. The economy is going to spiral out of control, and we're going to start out really scrabbling for things, and later on we're going to enter this phase where we're in abundance and pulling off these different things. No, because there are these caps on everything. Yes, you can get resources as much as you like, but you're still throttled, and you've got this throughput concern because you can't store enough of them. And you have all these resources, but you don't have enough things to spend them on, because... Anyway, so... Because there are no actions. <laughs> I don't... I, again, I wouldn't necessarily put it that way, but... You end up doing different things, not because there's this tremendous variety of stuff to do, but simply because the law of diminishing returns doesn't kick in. Instead, the rules of the game kick in to say, you are not allowed to do that anymore. You have to wait for this throughput to be raised, and maybe you can do that yourself, and maybe you can't. But it ends up making a vast, sprawling set of systems feel occasionally very claustrophobic and limiting. And even when the game has some potential for thematic elements, it is undercut by the fact that I feel like I'm being forced to go and do this thing simply because in On Mars, if you don't go and take care of that throughput, you can't go and keep doing what you were doing before, even if you were inclined to. So it was a forced variety, and it was a variety that felt surface deep to me. Well, the one the one sort of block to throughput was the advancing of the colony. I thought that was the yes. one the one part that was semi thematic to the game. The fact that you know you could find your engine and build all sorts of one particular building or whatever, but it meant, it meant nothing because the colony didn't need it. The colony needs it needs a nice level of buildings, and if you go over top of that, then it doesn't give you the benefits. You know, you can't overwork your engine, so. And this is a great example of some of the systems that did work together, and those things were very interesting. The round structure of the game is the ship, the shuttle, is either in orbit or on the planet, and when it goes from one space to the other, you can go with it, and that refreshes some of your workers, and it changes the actions that you have available uh, available to you. That part was potentially cool, especially when conjoined with the fact that as the colony gets stronger... As this life support, as these life support systems go up and the colony level goes up, the ship makes trips less frequently on the basis that the colony is now more self-sufficient. And so what you had was an interplay between the kind of buildings that are being built on the planet and the way the fundamental tempo of the round structure worked. That part was great. And if I thought that that was, if, if that was a salient, uh, a more salient part of the game, if that was one of the key elements, or indeed if you stripped off a lot of the other craft, I'd be much more positively inclined towards On Mars. That part was very cool, it was thematic, and it nonetheless showed some of these dis different systems working hand-in-hand -hand together. And that's why I liked that part so much. That part was great. I really enjoyed it. I thought the art was fine, and the components had great wooden wooden components. Everything worked pretty well together. I didn't have any problems, you know, parsing out what, what everything meant. Really? I, I found I had, the iconography very difficult to deal with, even I, after several games. Well, I thought the symbology was... Uh, was consistent. That's what I wasn't always, you know, uh, evident what was going on, but at least it was consistent. And once you understood what it meant, then it was consistent, consistent throughout the game. I guess I still found it baffling. And there were strange omissions. Like the, the player, your player mat in front of you is pretty good at identifying what the various restrictions are. But there was the fact that one of the restrictions, the number of ships you can welcome just wasn't listed anywhere on the board. 
Yeah, odd little bits that even after playing the game three or four times, you still have to go back to the reference book. Not reference sheet, Walker, the reference book, to go look up what all these things meant. Yeah. I found it a little bit tedious. Yeah, it had the, all these little weird, weird tweaky rules where, like you said, you could only welcome so many ships. And when you gathered crystals, you couldn't use them that turn. You had to wait. And I had all these little intricate things that you're... I'm wondering if there is a game of On Mars that you can play that no one ever made a mistake. That something wasn't <laughs> missed. You know what I mean? There's so many little things going on that I'm sure, you know, this triggers that. If you do this, then, you know, there's a whole sequence of events that goes off and you have to remember all these things. It just seems very baffling to me. Sure. And that that's my major criticism. That's why my two-word review is why bother. Because honestly, having gone through the effort of reading the rules, internalizing the rules, playing a number of games where the early games were incredibly slow and very painful because we didn't know what was going on. There was the, the the first game we played, the first full game we played, you tinkered around solo and we made some aborted early attempts that, that, that ended soon. Our mutual friend, who is normally not a man prone to cursing by halfway through the game, started cursing almost as much as I was about, really, this is how this works? Well, yeah. And I found that very illustrative. I don't know if it was just my influence of, of, of the fact that I swear all the time, but it was also just he was, he was experiencing frustrating dealing with the system. And when it, so this is a game that rewards system mastery. This is a game of dizzying, interconnected, complicated systems and defies you to just figure out how they work. A lot of people love games like this. And that's clear just from the success of Vitaliserta. But when I approach a game that requires system mastery, as opposed to rewarding experience or rewarding clever play, not that, that they're necessarily exclusionary to each other. I ask, what's the payoff? You know, I want a sense of scope. I want an epic theme or a sense of historicity. I want an endless degree of variety and interesting things to happen. The last game I think we reviewed where there was a very, very high bar of system mastery up front was Pax Renaissance. And I think the Pax Renaissance makes it worth it once you get past the other side. You didn't. That's cool. And having got past the other side on, on Mars, I'm left with, you know, a resource management Euro game that doesn't seem to pay off given the amount of effort that it took me to get here to become vaguely proficient with the game. Why would I play this instead of a game like, say, a splatter game with simple rules and much more player interaction, a greater degree of variety, and a greater degree of interconnectedness of systems because they interact in a more meaningful way? That's, that's the big question that I have after playing on Mars. That's where I'm sitting. Agreed. Well, since you just brought in player interaction, let's talk about I think the one, is there the one only place? I was thinking it was the turn order. The one, the one and only place player interaction took place. So there's a bit of player interaction sprinkled here and there. Like everything in On Mars, there's a little bit of everything if you go looking for it. So yes, there's there's you have to decide player order. There's the aspect of using other players' technologies and they get some benefit from that. There's building a building to get a bonus before somebody else can get that bonus. You can take a card from a display that somebody else would want. You Things can like that. Move your rover and take you can take stuff before other people take stuff. Precisely the which same is, level of minimal player interaction that we expect from Euro games which, generally. Which kind of boils down to, i.e., you have to go before they do in turn order. Yes, trying to true. Point. So this is the problem. One of the problems I had because you can, because like you talked about earlier, you can you can boost your most actions. So i.e., if you go first in player action, you can boost and take all the resources before anybody else gets any, or we sort of talked about these LSS victory points. And I talked to you about this where it's a fairly substantial bit of points and you're only going to be able to score score it when maybe once 
or once a round or once every two rounds because you only get to score it if the colony needs that particular building. And someone could come in and just build it before you did. And this whole thing that you've built up for the whole game or this whole strategy that you built up, you've just missed out on those points. Honestly, my, my criticism against that is slightly different. And that is since everything is so thoroughly throttled and you're limited based on the round, and I don't, it, it doesn't really make much of a difference. You know, I get two points per rocket ship that I've welcomed there. Well, the number of rocket ships I can get is strictly limited by the round. And the way I advance the round is by building more buildings, which is the things that gives me the bonus for the rocket ships anyway. So it's going to be a hard cap regardless. So I, f- I find it hard to get too enthusiastic about those benefits, which potentially lead to asymmetry when everything is kept under this very, very firm throttling mechanism. True, but... It's it's the only sort of strategy in the game, like long term strategy. Everything else is, yes. is you know you're buying blueprints; they all get you points. The moving thing up, you know, if you're working towards a long term strategy, I can't think of anything else in the game other than that that there is. Well, if you have if you're extremely experienced with On Mars, if you've played it to the point where you know the contents of the advanced blueprints deck backwards and forwards, and you've memorized what all the advanced buildings do, you could try to build towards that maybe, and maybe that would give you some advantage. I don't know. True. I just felt so people might say that, you know, if you're, you know, uh, taking this action just to deny people points, then you're, you know, using up your action. But I, my argument was in a, in a two-player game, denying people that many points is just as same as you getting those points. Or in a three-player game, you pretty well know one person's falling behind. You know who's in first or second. Denying someone 20 points is as as the same as giving yourself 20 points. That's maybe. I'm a little less down on the three-player experience than you are, I think, with more players it gets slightly more satisfying in that sense for the jockeying, but then the length goes up considerably as well. And with two players, you're talking about two hours if people know what they're doing, and every player just loads on probably about another hour on top of that, which, again, is... It's not that I feel desperately unsatisfied at the end of a game of On Mars, but I, again, wonder why bother. The amount of difficulty in just grappling with the system doesn't seem to pay off. There's not enough player interaction. I don't think that thematically it pays off very well. I didn't, you know, the rulebook gives you this sense that this is about, you know, struggling on an inhospitable world, which Terraforming Mars, or sorry, Terraforming Mars is trademarked by Stronghold Games. Uh, but trying to settle Mars would definitely be like that. But I didn't get a sense of struggling in the harshness of survival. I do, in other games like Agricola or in the Year of the Dragon, for example, there you feel like you're actually engaged in grueling, demanding tasks like medieval farming. Uh, even the voyages of Marco Polo felt like a more tight environment. The thing with on Mars is you're frequently wrestling with the game systems itself and the arbitrary caps rather than the lack of resources. I don't, if I'm lacking a battery, it's usually because the game had put me on a hard cap on things that I'm allowed to do rather than just that the economy is tight. The economy isn't tight at all. It's incredibly loose. There's a tremendous laxity in terms of how resources enter the system and all these other things. It's just an arbitrary set of limits that you have to navigate, and I don't find that nearly as engaging as the alternative. The other thing I have here is that it's a developer's nightmare because I feel as though that if a developer came in and, and tweaked some of the stuff and reduced some of the stuff, I think it would play much smoother. Much like I said, the, the crystals that you get, they go into a pool over to the side and you can't use them right away. You got to wait till your next turn. And they're mostly used to do these advanced actions, you know, that you can do either before or after your main action. So it helps move the game along. There's moving up and down from Mars, you know, we both felt that that was a little bit thematic, but sometimes it could get clunky and slow the game down because there's all these other mechanisms that also trigger, like putting stuff out on the board, collecting all your income, and it's just one of these things that seem to slow the flow down. And, and honestly, although this decision of do I stay or do I go 
and its relationship to the LSS and the Calling novel, as much as I like that, for a lot of the game, when the game is in its early stages, and everything is very, very difficult, and your caps are all very, very low on everything you're able to do, it is incredibly rare that it makes sense not to travel with the shuttle. It makes sense the overwhelming majority of the time in the early rounds to go with the shuttle all the time. And that minimized the, inter- the the level of interest in things. I compared it actually a little bit to Flotilla. The most interesting thing in Flotilla, for me, is deciding when to proceed to the second stage of the game. But that's something you do once. And so you spend the overwhelming majority of your time not interacting with the cool bits. Similarly, in On Mars, this element of traveling back and forth between the colony and the surface, usually, again, due to all these crippling limitations you have on a variety of resources that you have, usually it's very straightforward about whether you're going to be going with the shuttle with most of the time. It's only later on in the game, when the colony level has gone up, and the pace of the game has accelerated, because people have a little bit more infrastructure built up, that the decision gets more interesting. But by that point, the game is probably on its last legs Anyhow, so that was another element of disappointment. Then there's the actions. Some of the actions take workers. Some of the actions don't take workers. Some of the actions can be boosted by workers. Some of the actions can be boosted by crystals, and then it's all over the place. So none of them, you know, none of them sort of flow together, and you have no idea which take what takes what. That part at least is clearly identified on the board. You're right that there's no sort of thematic coherence to what does what. And I would frequently forget which one was which, but it was clearly identified on the board, so I didn't really have much problem with that. And the fundamental action selection mechanism, which is sometimes kind of sort of worker placement and sometimes kind of sort of not, was fine and very, very accessible. So that part, at least, I've got no qualms about. Then I didn't, I shouldn't say I didn't like the fact that 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 tech is used by all. It just seemed odd that the fact that you had to look over at everyone's sheet to find out, you know, where the techs were. It really didn't slow the game down that much because some of them were just obvious. It's like, you know, I'm going to build this. Is it at the right tech? But it just seemed weird that, you know, it's, I don't know, it just seemed odd to me. The the parts that I didn't like, again, this is a corner case, but it feeds into my central criticism, are parts where people's tech boards were literally gummed up. They could not advance techs anymore because there was literally no room on their little tech track. And then the aspect of using somebody else's tech becomes much less interesting because you know they cannot take full advantage of the fact that you're using their tech. Because when someone else uses your tech, you can upgrade it for free. Or you get an oxygen, which, again, you might or might not have room for on your board because of the various throughput concerns. And and when you play with more than two people, there's multiple copies of techs. So, you know, are you going to use, you know, X's tech or or Y's tech? Possible king-making problems, absolutely. And then there's the scientists. We didn't even talk about. There's yet another sideboard that has scientists and and missions that you can go on or or contracts contracts that you can take, and the fact that you can use your scientists to use other people's advanced actions and it's just well, just as an indication of how little the systems interact with each other in a substantive way. On Mars is the kind of game where you've got the rules explanation. And you can just decide to ignore vast tracts of the mechanisms. I'm not going to touch scientists. I'm not going to touch that aspect. I'm not going to deal with contracts. I'm not going to forget about it. I I don't care. Either because your brain shuts off at minute 45 of the rules explanation or because you don't find them interesting. And so you just get these blinders on because you get overwhelmed. If you compare that to something like A Feast for Odin, where you're presented with a massive sandbox and you can just decide, eh, I feel like whaling this time, or this time I'm going to raid, or what have you, I felt that it was a much less... You know, it was a similar instance of just exploring a subset of what was available to you, but under less ideal conditions. All right. And then there's just the fact of moving your workers around. 
I never felt as though I was, you know, low on workers or need workers. You know, you'd go in orbit, you'd spend a bunch of workers, you'd come down to the colony and spend a bunch of workers and you'd get them back and they'd flow back and forth. And there just seemed to be a lot of busy work for no real, you know, back and forth payoff. Again, once the colony gets to level two or three and the shuttle is moving much less frequently, then you have to worry about marshalling your workers because they're not going to come back as quickly. And that those were the most interesting part of the games for me. And then yet they heap on even more private goals as well. At the beginning of the game, you're dealt three cards, and you can either use them as more crystals or complete them as private goals. So yet another thing to track. Yeah, and on top of that, we should spend a, a we should devote a couple words to the so-called beginner version, whereby they introduce another sub mechanism for new players to play. That's an odd tack, right? You're playing a game like On Mars, and you figure, oh well, for your first few games, here's another set of sub mechanisms that you can learn. Here are two new decks of cards that are introduced in stages for you to deal with past what you normally would. I I was baffled. We didn't now, in in interest of full disclosure, we never played with them. They just seemed, it just seemed like an odd element because it wasn't the standard sort of, oh, here's a short-term contract goal, complete it and get a penny, which might have made sense. It's, oh, here's a short-term contract goal, complete it to get your other short-term contract goal, complete that, and then you get a penny. But this is parallel aside from the other short-term contract goals you get at the start of the game that you complete and get a penny. Yeah. A little bit more development work, a little bit more of an editorial eye. I mean, honestly, if there's a, a, a Euro management game here that could really lean into things that deal with the things that I like, this whole surface-to-orbit dynamic and the LSS and the colony level and changing the tempo there and had the end game take more time and the early game take less time, I think you could have a real winner. Agreed. And the I'm just going to keep... the re, There's these research tiles that are in the, in the four corners of the map that you're going to move your rover around. And they all do the same thing, but you can only have one copy of each. And it's just like... And it lets you advance tech. Why? Who knows? <laughs> as, I, as I said before, just to sum up. Oh, I'm sorry. You don't want to sum up. No, I don't all. want to sum up yet. I got all this other stuff. All right, go ahead, Walker. Stuff. How about, how about the, the end game triggers, right? Where you got to track everything you do, right? Because it, they're random every time. And who knows if it's the particular action that you did that's going to move the track down. It's yet another thing that you have to that you have to make sure that you it's keep the kind track of, of. It's the kind of thing we found easy to forget to track, yes. How about the fact that there's an eight-page... Normally in a game you get like a card for a reference. This is an eight-page reference book that has all the different, you know, cards and symbology and everything on it. I will say this. For all my complaints about the symbology, I wasn't a huge fan of the symbology. The reference book is very well organized, and I always found what I needed to look, uh, look for. It's just I needed to look for things very frequently. <laughs> oh, yes, the trays... The uh, game trays, everything was great. Oh yeah, <laughs> no, the fact, no, but the, overall, it was great. Everything went away perfectly. Everything was nice. But the one and and the the building tiles came out, made a nice display. But the one weird thing was, and we all commented, was the fact that the resources that you used so much of it were in a tray that you couldn't take. Well, you could take out of the box, but you know, really weren't supposed to take out of the box. Yeah, you take the the little tray out for this. Everyone gets their tray with their player components. You take the tray of the building components. That's all well and good. And then the tray that holds the fundamental resources of the game. Oh, that's just part of the standard box insert. So that's not available. That's off to the side. That that was indeed very weird. And then I got to play the solo. I'm just going to talk about the solo game very quickly. Sure. Plays very much like a Gaia Project i.e. The, the AI is going to choose a card, it's going to do a random action, and you pretty well do what's in the best interest that's going to mess with you or, you know, in the best interest of, you know, going to help out that player the most. You know, you just sort of flip it up, but they're going to do that action. Well, what's going to, in Gaia Project, they go through this whole weird tree of what's best, but you can, 
quickly just surmise from the board. This, they just actually say that whatever, you know, makes most sense for that player. They're going to do that. And it's mostly just a race against time because every time you flip up a card, it moves down one of those tracks that I just talked about randomly by one. So you're just trying to beat the clock and get the best score better than you did last time. And they have different missions of, of what you're supposed to accomplish. So that's kind of interesting. Now to sum up, Mark. <laughs> I, I will allow it. Okay. As I said, when I play a game with a high degree of system mastery that demands a fair degree of mental effort and time up front to even just interact with the bare elements of the game, I'm thinking here of games like On Mars, games like Pax Renaissance, games like Cerebri the Inside World, most war games, certainly some of my favorites like Successors, Triumph and Tragedy, uh, certainly a game like Mage Knight, for example. But what I get out of all of those games other than On Mars is some combination of a sense of scope, a sense of historicity or theme, a degree of variety, a vastly greater degree of player interaction, and a much more satisfying decision space where I feel like I'm not fighting the game systems. Ultimately, in a game of On Mars, I'm left asking the question, why bother? Even people who don't like games like Pax Renaissance or Cerebria can at least acknowledge that what's going on there is somewhat novel and interesting. No one, no one could uh, listen to a description of what happens in Pax Renaissance and say, oh, well, that sounds like every other game that I play. And in a game like Cerebria, at least it comes to a fine point and you're playing a very tense area majority contest against another set of players. And so I'm able to, after going to the other side of internalizing how to work these games and pull these levers, I feel like I'm doing something novel and interesting. But in the case of a game like On Mars, I feel like I'm engaged in uh, Eurogame systems for the sake of Eurogame systems. Unlike other Eurogame uh, Euro games that allow for greater degree of interesting decisions and much more player interaction and greater degree of theme. So I'm left asking the question, why bother? It's fine. I don't dislike On Mars to a great degree. I think it's slightly overlong and definitely overwrought, but I don't think it's worth the effort. Agreed. What I usually, what I've been asking myself these past few months is what is fun in a game after we play it, like even though we don't like it or we don't like anything, what part of the game was fun? Like we, I hate all the mechanisms, but I didn't want to do any of this part, but I enjoy doing this one thing. I'll, I'll keep doing this. I enjoy doing that and getting points for it. And that's fine. I don't really feel there's any of that in On Mars. There's not a certain part of the game it's fun i just felt as though it was actions you know making other actions uh more powerful or letting those actions be taken easier and all build up to try to get points get points 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 ultimately i think this is just another instance uh, solidifying or continuing my impression of Vitalis Serta as uh someone who produces things that are certainly worthy of respect but probably shouldn't be played Agreed. I would I would definitely not want to play on Mars again. If it was like the only game being played, then I would have to force myself, but I would definitely try to get them to play something else. I'm still curious to try Kanban, but I'm certainly not going to... Someone would have to pay me to play Escape Plan, or to play Vinhos, or the next Vital Lacerda game. He's, he's got a definite style. It's a very, very definite type of design aesthetic and design space, and it is manifestly not for me. Agreed. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker by his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, now in excess of 1,000 members, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we will get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! 
You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigman. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah.